I'm Kathy Petrus. I'm Ross Petrus. And our book is... A History of the World Through Body Parts. If you're a fan of KMUW podcasts, you've likely heard of Kathy Petrus and Ross Petrus. The sister and brother team co-host You're Saying It Wrong with KMUW's Fletcher Powell, an offshoot of their book with the same title. Now Kathy and Ross have written a new book, This one isn't about words, but about body parts and their special place in history. I recently spoke with the Petruses about the rabbit holes their research takes them down, about working together in what has become a quote-unquote family business, and of course, about the new book. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. So could you give our listeners a description of a history of the world through body parts? Because, you know, perhaps you could explain it as you did in the introduction to the book. Um, The idea came from Cleopatra's nose. Well, it's interesting. There's a famous saying by Pascal, the philosopher, the French philosopher, and it goes essentially, had Cleopatra's nose been any smaller, the world would have been a very different place. Now, immediately that hit us. Like, what's he, what's Pascal talking about? It's funny because this launched the whole thing. Ross and I started chatting about it, which we do extensively working together. We always end up going into these like weird little rabbit holes and so on. And the whole thing was that an individual body part, in this case, Cleopatra's nose, did indeed change things. It's like, as we noted, it's like her nose, the size changed when it was in Rome. It was a larger nose. When it was in Egypt, it was a smaller nose. In, in terms of being depicted, incidentally, not oh, actually. Oh, yeah. No, I just say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was smaller. it was not an oddly <laughs> moving, morphing proboscis. But what we realized was that body parts on two levels fascinated us. Because on one hand, you had the historical nose, the nose changing to mirror the mores and the politics and the whatever of the times. On the other hand, you have people and their bodies are the history makers. They're not just things on a page, for lack of a better term. They're they're real, corporeal, like us. Yeah, no, it really fascinated us in that sense. The body, for example, of Kaiser Wilhelm, his, he, when he was born, it was apparently a breech birth, and apparently, given the exigencies of the times, the doctors basically had to, had to pull out the baby from underneath uh, his queen mother's clothing because they weren't allowed to expose the baby and the mother's parts to the public, and it was a botched birth. That botched birth caused poor Kaiser Wilhelm to have an, a, a basically a withered arm, which he and he blamed it on the British doctor who actually did the uh, obstetrics. That basic bad arm caused him to become very bitter against the British. And then from there, we have World War II. How much of World War II is due to the arm? We don't know. But the point is, in this case, there's a plausible argument to be made that perhaps that botched birth, the arm that's slightly withered, caused basically Kaiser Wilhelm to be more enthusiastic about fighting the British, and hence World War I. (laughs) So although this started with Cleopatra's nose, the essays in the book follow a timeline beginning with, you know, the fine art of hand stenciling and ending with Alan Shepard's bladder. So these <laughs> stories... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> these stories take us through history, and I found it fascinating to learn about, you know, not only the thinking of the day, but to learn about that juxtaposed with recent scientific discoveries, debunking some of the myths. So can you talk mm-hmm. to me about, you know, the, you know, why you did this in chronological order? Well, I guess 
on one level, it was an author's conceit, I've got to admit. I mean, it's like there is an elegance from going from prehistoric hands to Alan Shepard in space having to pee in a spacesuit. I mean, there is something poetic, if you will. Although we did think think of the alternative, too. We did think of going from the head, the brain, Einstein's brain, and going down to a toe, but we couldn't find, there was a gouty toe or two, but we couldn't really, it didn't really fit into the book. We do have, though, no, but we do have the bound feet, so and we could go to the foot, if you will. We could have. The thing that I think got me, and I'm I'm speaking for myself, and Ross might agree or disagree, probably all agree, was that doing it his, in a chronological thing, you've got more of a feel for, for life, you know, how the world evolves. And that was really our goal with this, was, was taking the body from what? Ross is going to say something. I see it on well, his face. Well, I'm actually going to disagree with you here, actually. I knew it. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I mean, that's the fun thing about working with someone. I felt we basically did look at the book like, how could we do an arc? And it's interesting because the body in history and in life, there are different modes of treating the body. And it's sort of like a sine wave to some degree. There there are recurring patterns. I think that to some degree to say that the body has evolved in the sense of our attitudes towards it isn't really quite correct. I mean, there have been times when we, we altered the body dramatically. And we had a case of foot binding, for example, in China, and then the revolution against foot binding. But Right now, for example, we're going through a, a phase of a lot of tattoos, studs in Piercings. the face, et cetera. And I would have argued 20 years ago that you know now the body is pristine. We're not going to change the body whatsoever. And we are. So I don't really know if there has been an arc. I think we, as humans, we're so recent on the world stage that to some degree, we're manipulating our bodies as we speak, and we're going to continue to do so in the future. And Kathy's now raising her finger to disagree with me. <laughs> hey, hey, teacher, teacher, pick me. <laughs> I have an answer. No, I think you misunderstood what I was saying. I was saying that, I, I, obviously, I mean, we've got body mods now where, God, I don't know if it's still happening in Japan where they do those like bagels in their forehead underneath the skin. Mm-hmm. We've seen that. No, I was, I was saying we were doing it as to see the scope of history starting from the beginning to the end. It was like, there was the arc just in terms of time. I don't think attitudes where the body have changed. I think though that the body at that moment had different connections, if you will. But even there though, there there have been so many different, there are so many different societies and different attitudes towards the body even there, which also really fascinated us. I mean, and it's interesting. One thing that really got me with the book was how custom basically informs our own attitudes. I mean, we have Cortez going and conquering uh, Aztecs and is horrified at the ripping out of the body. While at the same time, back home, they're they're torturing people uh, in the Inquisition, or a little bit earlier, actually, too. So, I mean, there are different attitudes towards blood, towards anything, even within a given uh, era. Mm. Okay, so along with the essays, there are many, you know, like sidebar stories. Some are exceptions to the rules that you just wrote about in the essays, but others are just interesting tidbits. And I can only imagine the rabbit holes you found yourselves in. How do you decide what makes the cut into the essay? What makes the original essay? What deserves a sidebar? And what is left out of this history? That's a horribly good question. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough. I mean, honestly, it's it's, part of it is um, a gut thing. A lot of the sidebars were stuff that we just loved and didn't elegantly fit into the the flow to be honest with you so it's like but we wanted to make sure it got in there somehow so mm-hmm. it's like quick here it's shoehorn it in the thing that was the saddest i think ross will agree with me on this one even though he didn't agree on the last one is that mm. uh 
after we finished, it's always the case. We handed it in. We're happy with the book. Suddenly we found 189,000 things. We're like, oh no, this should have been in there <laughs> after the fact, totally after the fact. And it's like, and we couldn't. But a lot of the sidebars really were indeed just stuff that we thought was fun, but just weren't part of the flow. Because this is supposed to be a hodgepodge. What? Go on, Ross. I'm sorry. Oh, no, even with like, for example, even there were kind of off base too. Kathy did, we did a piece on Washington's teeth, mm -hmm. false teeth. Were they, you know, what were they made of slave, enslaved people's teeth? Were they made of, of donkey teeth or whatever? But as a subset of that, there was a fascinating little bit we put in that apparently the first case of mandatory vaccination in America was conducted by Washington uh, during the Revolutionary War. And this, we were writing this at the time of big arguments going on with the pandemic. And it was really interesting to find that George Washington was the first, and then the Brits did not have mandatory vaccines. No, I know, that fascinated me, indeed. And that really got me. And then what also got me with that was actually, it's not technically vaccination. We write word books too. And vaccination <laughs> comes from cow, which is waka in Latin. And this was called variolation because they actually use the variola virus, which is the real smallpox virus. We're like really repositories of small facts, aren't we, Ross? <laughs> <laughs> I'm frightened. <laughs> so I had a few favorites, and maybe we can talk about some of them. So first, mm -hmm. first was Richard III's back. Shakespeare got it wrong, didn't he? Oh, yeah. That was, <laughs> that's one of my favorites, too. So I love you for that. Now, it's a pet peeve of mine. Absolutely. Richard III was really, unfortunately, the victim of a PR campaign. I mean, it was the whole thing with your tutors. And he, he fell on the wrong side. He fell on the losing side, you know, obviously. So he had to become a villain. And they made him into a monster. I mean, and, and it's sad. I mean, granted, when they found his skeleton in that parking lot, they did see that there was scoliosis there. So there was something going on, but he was far from this like misshapen, you know, demon that Shakespeare made him out to be. Although it's very well written, I'll admit. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have to help me with this pronunciation. Is it Almaari's eyes? How do you say that? Oh, Al, that's a toughie because the name has an Arabic letter in it, Ayn, so it'd be Almaty, like that, oh, which well, is tough to say. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Beth, you can do it. Say, say, say it for me one more time. Almaty. Almaty. There's like a slightly, it's like, I, you have to kind of Ma go like backwards. I have to go to my German. Now, this man was completely unfamiliar to me, and I found his story so interesting. So can you talk about the blindness that, you know, quote, gave him an ear for words and a talent for memory? Sure. One thing we're going to start with, though, too, is the desert in the Middle East is really bad for eyes, for ophthalmology. Kath and I both, when we were kids, lived in Egypt. Our father was with the embassy there. And when I came back, I had trachoma. So I'm really sensitive to the whole eye issue. There's a lot of blindness. Actually, in, in some senses, the um, Arabs were pioneers, for that matter, in um, ophthalmologic operations, et cetera. But Al-Mahdi, uh, his eyes were, were badly damaged. And he basically credited that, that damage with like creating in him, which we know, I mean, there's compensation in all things. And he basically felt that, that, that his blindness compensated and he became a great poet for that. And he still is known as one of the great poets of uh, in Arabic literature. However, 
he was also seen by many people as blasphemous. And we opened that section with like one of the weirdest cases of uh, beheading that we've ever known, which was Al-Qaeda took over the uh, museum where he was and they beheaded a statue of him because they felt that he was a heretic. I love the visuals of that. I mean, for lack of a better term, since we're talking about a blind man, there's something to me that that really got me, Ross, when you wrote that section of, of the beheading the statue. I, I've got to mm -hmm. say, there's something very visceral or, or, or evocative is the better term about that. And I really liked that, I've got to say. What was specifically, would you, would you want to know about the Almaty thing? Well, no, I, I found it, I, I was fascinated by the fact that he influenced Dante. But then you also yes. wrote that the fact that, you know, this controversial poet philosopher not only lived, but also thrived in this medieval era says a lot about the state of the medieval Islamic East. That's one of my uh, big pet peeve of mine, because I think we, we tend now to go, oh, they're so primitive. Yet, I mean, there, there's a lot of, you see that all the time, you know, the anti-Islamic, Islamophobic literature, but that was truly an era of, of great cities, of great mm. of great literature, and of great tolerance. I mean, Almaty, you know, would, would today be probably uh, in trouble in the United States as well as in, 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 in the Middle East for his, he was very much of a free thinker in some ways. He claimed to be religious and he was actually at one point was accused of heresy and, and skillfully defended himself. And his poetry is simply beautiful. I think it's probably best read in Arabic. It was interesting because he's so little known in the West. I actually had to go to a couple of Arabic sources to actually read it in the original. And it was it, it was it's tough to find a lot about him. So I was really glad to have put him in. I just want to throw in also, this is like a, like a, a slightly lighter part of Almaty. He was a vegan. He's like probably one of the first vegans that we know I know. Of. Isn't that, that's really I neat. But I you know. Know, it seems so modern. You know what I mean? It's like you've got this evil Arab guy and he's like a vegan. <laughs> and he wrote about it too, which is like, okay. <laughs> so Kathy, you just commented on a piece or a section that Ross wrote. How did you divide and conquer this book? Did you each take different essays? and and Pretty much. We had like ideas and we just had the big list and we would just like take whatever intrigued us and put a k or an r very cleverly <laughs> very high tech you know complicated system and i would know that ross was doing that so i will touch it it just divided itself actually i mean yeah um, I no ross and i and i think because we're brother and sister it's easy for us to sort of mimic each other's writing and we both heavily edited each other's work as oh, well. Yeah. So both of us are in each one. When Kathy said your thing or I said my thing, I think they're all really our thing in that sense completely. Mm -hmm. There is, uh, we do Martin Luther, who apparently had this reformation. On the uh, toilet. On the toilet. And the Latin word is cloaca, which is a function of great debate. Some people who are probably Protestant, uh, Protestants <laughs> claiming cloaca in the in medieval times basically didn't really mean toilet. It meant warm area in a room. So Kathy and I both yeah, did we all did. sorts of, uh, I mean, both of us were sitting there going through words, how cloaca usage <laughs> in Latin back and forth until we decided probably it did mean toilet. The one thing I've got to say that works nicely with the two of us in terms of splitting things, we're both research nuts. We really are. We got that from dad, Ross. There's no question. Mm -hmm. It's definitely dad. Although we're way better than he was. Although he wasn't that bad. Anyway, and mm -hmm. we do, we we both go a little crazy with it. And, and it's fun because you have, you know, a sibling. We grew up together. So there's absolutely no, there's a lot of competition, actually. But there's no worry about rancor or anything ultimately so I think we both dive deep and and debate and 
kick things around. And it, it's a fun process, actually. I really enjoy working with Ross. I, I think I'm the better writer, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I really, and I, I really enjoyed also, just like Kathy had said earlier, just the, the serendipitous connections that you don't really realize until later in the book. Kathy had put that special thing on uh, George Washington's vaccination. And then we jumped to another piece where we were doing uh, Mary Mallon, uh, Typhoid Mary, and mm. back to vaccination, you know, 200 years later, 100 years later. So those weird connections back and forth were really fun. Do you have a favorite story in the collection, Kathy? Ooh, that's a toughie. I have a, a least favorite that I, I wrote. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I won't go into that. I, actually, my least favorite is Frida Kahlo because I don't know why. And everybody loves Frida Kahlo, but I just don't like her that much, even though I was her for Halloween one year. But I wasn't crazy about doing that. But it was interesting. Ultimately, when I after I wrote it, I liked her a lot more. I think my favorite in the whole book is crap. I'm thinking now. Okay, St. Cuthbert's fingernails. That's my favorite. I'm fascinated by the whole concept of reliquaries and the selling of the relics. I also kind of like St. Cuthbert when I was done with it because uh, I'm not a very, I never knew about St. Cuthbert. And I, I have a friend right now who's at Durham Cathedral and I want to ask him if he saw St. Cuthbert. I, I liked the concept of a dead guy getting manicures constantly for the good of the Catholic church. <laughs> there's something about that that just like won me over. And we did find out Ross and I that they're still selling pieces of saints, medieval saints on eBay and they're marked used, <laughs> which I just adored. <laughs> How about you, Ross? Do you have a favorite? Um, the most interesting to me it kind of leads to the whole theme of the book and it was, it's sort of prosaic. It's Alan Shepard's bladder. And the idea is uh, defecation, peeing and urinating in space, which sounds really kind of disgusting or weird or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, it, it hits me that like we are, we think of ourselves in many ways as almost spirits. You know, we just sort of drift into here or not, but we're really stuck in our bodies. And we, I used to always think of going into space as being, you know, you just get a spaceship and you, you're there. But you're not. You have to think. You have to do things like pee. And Alan Shepard, when he it was the first flight of a of American into into space, they didn't bother worrying about that because it was going to only last 15 minutes. But he was in before he got into space. He was there for about eight hours, and he had to go. And he did it, and he ended up doing it in his spacesuit, and he shorted out the uh, monitors to to the physiological monitors. But now that sounds really minor, but it leads to something that I think is really major that we are bodies and mm. as we expand and go and we move on into mars and jupiter or wherever we're going to basically have to deal with the fact that we're human bodies involved there we have to deal with space dust we have to deal with again the normal bodily functions i was gonna say if i could interject though i think even more to the point is it, it's the opposite way we forget as you had said earlier that people are people regardless of the fact if they were like hutch upset back in ancient egypt or Alan Shepard having a pee in a spacesuit. And I think we forget the real human aspect of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're embodied creatures in an mm -hmm. embodied history and histories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we do forget that. And that really was the theme of the book. It wasn't just taking body parts. It was talking about how these body parts interact with history and interact with ideas as well. I also found it fascinating that we did we didn't know how women would ha like their menstrual cycles how they would wasn't that amazing yeah, oh i that i loved <laughs> and what really bothered me is i'm married i have a sister and the story goes uh when men were talking about uh the first woman in space 
they asked, she was going to be there a week, and they said, just in case you have your period, how many uh, yes. would you need? Is 100 about the right number, they asked. 100? She said, no, not really. I think about 20. <laughs> and I, don't, I adored that. Ross found that. And I thought that was fabulous, I've got to say. <laughs> but going even further to that, like, I'm not that sure I would have asked, do you want 100? I don't know. That's what gets me how little we know about others' bodies as well. <laughs> So I mentioned earlier that modern science has been able to shed light on some of these stories and myths. You know, like Kathy mentioned, when Richard III's body was identified 500 years after his death, when a parking lot was excavated in 2012, you know, and, and the mitochondrial DNA matched him beyond a reasonable doubt, saying it was him. Mm-hmm. And when Martin Luther's 450-year-old toilet was found, is there <laughs> is there an ambiguous story or myth that you'd love for science to solve? Uh, Martin Luther's to- toilet? About any of these or any myths that, you know, like a lot of them, we, we've had science touch on them later and, and it brings mm. a, another la- a level of nuance to the story. But are there any stories or myths that we haven't solved that you would like for science to solve? Oh, God, that's a toughie. Crap. <laughs> you can also tell me we'll skip that one. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of any Ross? I'm not, I'm not, that's a good question, I, I think. Ones that, we've, ones that we missed, you mean, or we didn't do? Yeah, that is tough. Or mysteries that, even if they were in the book, Ross, anything that we would or like anything, to or know. How about this? Anything you feel should remain ambiguous? Well, I would like to know if Hatshepsut's uh, mummy, if that is linked, actually. Hatshepsut was, we have her in the early part of the book. Um, we have it with her beard. The Egyptians were probably among the least misogynist ancient group in history. Mm. And um, Hatshepsut became a pharaoh and we have her, she wore a fake beard and she's depicted, I mean, she's just depicted as this beautiful, slim woman, et cetera. And a lot of the tombs, including her tomb was robbed in antiquity. And the, uh, the police in those days when the tomb had been violated, a lot of times people, the thieves wouldn't take the mummy. So they got all of the mummies of a lot of the dead kings and queens had put them in one giant tomb, which was found in the 1800s. And in there is a body of a rather, you know, someone who's middle-aged, a little overweight, she had cancer. And the question is, is that the great queen Hatshepsut? Now, they did find an attested piece of her body in another, they used to, Egyptians would take apart the body and put various parts in various um, funerary urns. They did find a piece of that room that says it's Queen Hatshepsut. So the question is linking that DNA to the um, mummy DNA. So I'm curious about that. That has not been tested. Well, that, I, I thought it was a that was it the canopic box that had the liver yeah, the and a tooth. Right. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. liver and a tooth. Because the tooth was the thing that gripped me. I'm fascinated I, by we don't have it in the book was Eve's tomb. That's always intrigued me. I went to Eve's tomb. It's in oh, Jeddah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It, it, I forgot that. It's really interesting. It's a tomb that is attested to belong to Eve. In, As an in Adam and Eve. <laughs> As an Adam and Eve. And it's interesting because the tomb is, it's much, it's long. It goes, I think, a couple hundred feet. You know, supposedly she was a giant, I guess, in terms of history. When I was in Saudi Arabia, it was literally, it was walled off because the Wahhabis were were very, they were against having any depiction of bodies or things like tombs. And so it's walled off and it was basically garbage. 
a garbage dump. People would just chuck things into it. I don't know what it's like now, but I'd be, I agree with Kathy, be very curious about examining. That's the one, that's the one I think when I, I was thinking while you were speaking and I thought, yeah, that's, that's a mystery I'd like to see mm -hmm. going into. Mm -hmm. But we didn't Excavate it and see what, what, yeah. what is there? Why is it so long? You know, is it a tomb of, of some pre-Islamic person or is it, does it go, it probably is much further back. It's probably, dated you know days to ancient times but we don't really know it has not been excavated as, a, as far as i know well i i mentioned the ones that i really love but i also keep thinking about and i'm not sure if it was from the the relics or from the burying the heart separate from the body but like the cat that would eat the heart or somebody <laughs> what, 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 who's the man who like or somebody bit the off the toe put it in his or, mouth yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, there were two. Those are my two. Oh, I love you. Those are two of my favorites. It was, um, I think it was in the relic one. It was, yes, it was in, it was in Cuthbert. The woman, I think it was Donia, God, I don't remember her name, because they were so expensive. If you got a relic, you basically could fund your own chapel or your own family, what have you. And um, was she Portuguese? I don't even remember. Oh no, yeah, and she, she bit off the toe. She bit yeah. off the toe. She went I and pretended, she went and pretended, she was Portuguese. And she went, that was it, I'm fine. I'm looking at it right now. She bent to piously kiss his foot. It was St. Francis Xavier. And she bit off his little toe kept it in her mouth, ran back to Portugal and enshrined it in the family chapel where then you get like pilgrims coming and you you sell your own like little pilgrimage souvenirs. It's all very nice. You make a lot of money. That one fascinated. Okay, you go back to the basis. We talk now about how people want to make money the cheapest way. They were doing it all along, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they're still doing it. I mean, just for, I mean, like 20 years ago, St. Mark was apparently stolen from Alexandria, his body. Mm -hmm. And um, part, I think a little piece of bone, a little chunk of bone was returned to Egypt in 1968. They had like this big, you know, this big hug to do about it. So we're still kind of trading in relics to this day. And Kathy noted they're found on eBay as well. But the funny thing to me is though, is this is really not different. We go back to like, again, connections. Okay, so back then you wanted to get a chunk of a saint. It's the same thing as getting Mickey Mouse ears in a weird way mm -hmm. at, at Disneyland, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's that whole need for a souvenir. It's just like yeah. one is a little more, you know, divine or something. And to and to have the body is slightly holy. And I, I we had that a section on Lenin's Lenin's sort of mummy in in Moscow. We had you know Mao's in uh, Beijing, etc. So in a way, those are sort of like secular saints and people go to those tombs as well yeah the human attitude towards the body is really fascinating because on one hand we revile it on the other hand we worship it it's it's a very mm -hmm. odd thing and it's and it's very indicative of how we feel about life actually or, mm -hmm. or our, our our status or society at large you may quote me <laughs> <laughs> The book is A History of the World Through Body Parts. Kathy Petrus and Ross Petrus, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so okay, much, Thank Beth. you. That was Kathy Petrus and Ross Petrus, authors of the book A History of the World Through Body Parts, the stories behind the organs, appendages, digits, and the like attached to or detached from Famous Bodies, which was published by Chronicle Books. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. 
Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.